Well, as we uh, continue in our study of Luke and our worshiping of what God is and who he is and reframing this kingdom, we're looking at a series called The Feast of Forgiveness. And while we've been studying the Feast of Forgiveness, we've also been learning about how to study the Bible using a technique we've been calling the pacer. So my friend Steve came up to me a few weeks ago and he said, Chad, look at this. And he held up his phone. He showed me this, what I remembered as the bubble car. You guys remember the bubble car? He's like, no, that was the pacer. That'll help us remember it. I thought, well, it'll help some people remember it. So if that helps you looking at the pacer, what I referred to as the bubble car growing up, that is the uh, acronym we're using when you study any passage of the Bible. And we're going to do that together. And then out of that, you'll see kind of how the message forms itself. We're looking for promises to claim, actions to follow, commands to obey, examples to imitate or not imitate, or any rebellion we need to repent of. And it's not always clear. It's not like you have to get these things right. Sometimes an action and a command might seem the same. So let's look at our passage today. We're in Luke 22, verses 24 to 26. Now there also arose a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. So immediately here we have an example maybe not to imitate, sitting around a table arguing about who's greater than who. That's probably a good example not to imitate. Then he said to them, Jesus talking to the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority over people. And those who exercise authority over people are called benefactors. Don't be like them. On the contrary, so right there's another example not to imitate, and that is don't be like the Gentile kings. And he says it twice here in verse 26. Don't be like them on the contrary. So what's the difference there is, I want you, if you want to be great, I want you to be like the younger. So there's a command there to be great by acting like the younger. What does that mean? We'll call that a command. And he who governs or leads people, I want you to lead like you're serving them. There's another command to obey. We continue the passage. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves those who sit at the table? Is it not he who sits at the table? Isn't that what your culture has taught you? But I am among you the one who serves, yet I. He said, if that's true, then why am I, the Son of God, the Son of Man, serving you, washing your feet here at the table today? Here's an example to imitate. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. Oh, we got a promise. God has given us a kingdom. My Father gave a kingdom to me, and now I'm giving it to you. Another promise, that you may eat or drink at my table, and that you can sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Another promise of future rewards. So this is kind of how you look at a passage and begin to tear it apart, and then you're looking for things that the Holy Spirit may want to speak to you through the text. Now, with that, I want to give you a key verse for today. We're going to do that for the next few months. What's the key verse that kind of summarizes Jesus' teaching here? The disciples are disputing or arguing about who's the greatest. You know, Jesus never actually rebukes them for that. Our desire to be the greatest is not the problem. What he does do is redefine their definition of what it means to be the greatest. They're arguing about being the greatest, and he says, well, let me tell you how to be the greatest. If you want to be the greatest among you, govern, lead, serve like one who serves other people. He's basically saying your problem isn't your desire to be the greatest. Your problem is your definition of what it means to be the greatest. 
And so he's going to help us redefine what it means to be great so we can still be ambitious, we can still have high goals, but we're aimed at God's definition, not our own definition. Serving other people and being other-centered. I was talking to John Kirby about a month ago, and he said, hey, have you, have you heard what's going on with Charlie? And many of you may know Charlie. He serves down at City Gospel Mission. John said he's served over 100,000 meals by now. And he reminded me his story. So he's going down each week with volunteers and those um, who are either on the volunteer team or want to serve with their families for City Gospel. But Charlie began cooking down there because he lost his wife. It was in that period of grief... He was kind of consumed with all of the grief and all of the you know, anxiety of losing someone you cared about. That he said, you know what I want to do? I want to put my mind on someone else. I want to go and serve. And so he began to go down and serve and cook at City Gospel. As he did that, you know, lining up, building relationships, cooking food, figuring out how to take a, a recipe for six and make it for 60. He said it was over those years that God used his focus on other people, the relationships he made, the people coming through the line, the cooking, the the interaction with the folks on that team, that God used that to give him a sense of purpose again. To get his eyes off his own grief and onto other people's needs. And John many times over the years said, Charlie, thanks so much for everything you do. And every time he deflects that and says, no, thank you. This saved my life. This is what God used to heal me to help me. See, serving other people is the secret to purpose. It's the secret to the best kind of life. And that's what Jesus is offering to you and I. To do that, though, he's going to have to combat three different leadership lies that are embedded in the culture they're living in that they don't even know they picked up. He's going to say, if you reject these lies, you can then better understand God's definition of greatness. So let's look over the first lie. The first lie begins um, as the disciples begin. And and here's here's the lie. My influence or my leadership is determined by my title. See, a dispute has has broke out among them as they're sitting around the table. And the dispute is, who's the greatest? Well, who sat by Jesus? Which seat are you in? If you're to the right of Jesus, you might be more important. What if that means the right hand in heaven? And this dispute is not a one-time deal. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are often fighting about their title. They're often fighting about who's going to be on the left or right hand of God. Sometimes even one of their mothers comes to Jesus. Can my sons be at your left and right hand? It's all about the titles. And this dispute that's going on, it's really interesting here because this concept gets hinted at, but it gets explained later very clearly, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, isn't that an interesting word? Because to be considered the greatest is something that's done to you. Someone else considers me great. And if you really want to be great, someone else has to consider you great. So the question is based on what criteria? If God's going to consider you great, if Jesus is going to consider you great, it's not something you accumulate yourself. It's something that you say, what is your definition of greatness so I can meet that standard? And haven't you in season in your life or known people in your life who thought that, you know, once I get the title, then I'll be a leader. Once I get my bachelor's degree, get my MBA, once I have my own company, once my territory is this big, once I'm the supervisor, once I'm the vice president, once I'm the CEO. But isn't the truth that titles are sometimes irrelevant 
to your ability to lead and influence other people. In fact, the delusion that once you get a title, you no longer, you, you suddenly got it made, isn't even true because you're always leading from the middle of the pack. I remember when I first got into ministry in 1995, full-time, I remember I was a big fan of John Maxwell. Not as big of a fan anymore, but um, some of the lessons he taught in those early days really were helpful. One of those he articulates in his book, The 360-Degree Leader, is the myth of positional authority. That I need positional authority, a title, in order to be a leader. He gave a talk I listened to in 96 about leading from the middle of the pack. And regardless your title, you need to learn how to lead and influence people below you, above you, to the side of you, how to lead from the middle of the pack. Because even when you're at the top of the food chain, you're still going to have to lead people above you, whether that's a board or that's stockholders. You're always going to need to lead, and it's not based on your title. Or maybe you've had people in your life who thought, I've had people work for me this way, who said, hey, if I get the title, then I could do the job. And you're like, no, no, I want you to see you kind of doing the job, then we'll give you the title, right? But it's this myth that until I get a title, I can't do what God's called me to do. And that's what's being argued about here at the table that day. I've seen this in marriages many times, where one person in the marriage will take one verse and say, you know, I'm the head of the household, you need to listen to me. And there'll be a very domineering, top-down kind of approach to marriage. And I'll say, well, listen, there's another verse, like three verses before that, that says, submit to one another. There's another verse about marriage that says, listen to one another, be quick to listen and slow to anger. There's another principle in the Bible about comforting each other and loving each other and being selfless to one another. Why did you pick one verse and kind of twist it into a domination kind of mindset? As if your title gives you the right to command. So that's the idea Jesus is getting at here, which is that if you think titles give you influence, I've had a lot of people in my life who had titles and I didn't give them much respect at all. So let's reject that idea and see even like where the disciples come up with this idea. And that's what Jesus is going to address in a second lie. The second maybe leadership lie is this idea that until I'm over someone, I can't lead someone. Now, where do the disciples get this idea? Until I'm over someone, I cannot lead or influence someone. Until I'm their boss, until I'm their supervisor. Well, Jesus addresses this. He says, guys, you know where you've got this idea? From the Greek-Roman world around us. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority over them. It's an over them kind of leadership. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. It's a very specific term he uses here, benefactors. It can also use in that time was the word uh, a patron. The Greeks and Romans had devised this caste system. So the Egyptians had a caste system. Uh, the Romans had a caste system. Um, you know, Great Britain had a caste system. But in these days, what had been highly influencing the disciples' understanding is a caste system. That there's a few people here who are over the people who are here, who are over the people who are here, who are over the people here. Now, in order to understand maybe why they're struggling or think they need to be over someone to lead someone, I want to take that word benefactor. It's synonymous with the word patron or patronage. Now, I want to give you a little history lesson on maybe the Roman concept of that, and then we're going to dig into how to reject that lie and what Jesus is saying here. So let's watch this video real quick about what that means, what it looks like uh, in those days. Like many things in Roman society, The origins of the fabled patron-client relationship began with the very earliest founder of the city, Romulus. 
The myths concerning those enigmatic days are likely just that, but they state that soon after the city's creation, Romulus distinguished between the more powerful members of society, the patricians, and those who were less powerful, the plebeians. The former were appointed to functions which would run society, such as priests, magistrates, and judges, while the latter were prohibited from this. They would perform the basest tasks, such as farming and trading. However, unlike most cities, the founder put the plebeians in the guardianship of the less numerous patricians, allowing each plebeian to choose their patron. This would grow into the sacred institution of clientelia and patricinium, which was essentially a series of reciprocal relations between richer and more prestigious citizens of the Roman state and the poorer disenfranchised masses. Meanwhile, the duties of clients could be many things, which are primarily oriented around increasing the prestige or dignitas of their patron, although there are exceptions. For instance, the foundational relationship between an individual patron and client might consist of the client performing a morning salutatio or greeting in front of their patron's residence. From there, the many clients would follow their patron to their daily business, perhaps in the forum or the law courts. Regardless of their personal opinions on a particular matter, the client would be expected to applaud and promote the interests of their patron, honoring the reciprocal relationship. The more clients seen under the guardianship of a patron, the more dignitas they would accumulate among their peers. Rather than being an isolated relationship between one citizen and another, a patron of many clients may have a patron of their own, of an even higher social status, creating a network comprised of many of these interlinkages. Perhaps the most prominent and visible of these relations during the turbulent late Republican period was that of the conqueror and the kingdoms which were conquered. Instead of direct integration as a Roman province, Pompey initially installed client kings in those eastern regions subjugated during his command, such as Crimea, Armenia, and Judea. These kings would rally for their illustrious patron at the Battle of Pharsalus against Caesar in 48 BC. Caesar himself also functioned as the patron of Hispalis, modern-day Sevilla, where he gave many benefits and tax reductions to its citizens during his role as quaestor. This made it even more galling and insulting when, during the Caesarian Civil War, this region sided with his enemy Pompey, breaking the sacred patron-client relationship. So when Jesus uses this word benefactor, it was also used the word patron. It was somebody who, in that hierarchy, was high up. And yes, there were benefits to the people who worked for you, but ultimately their main job was to clap at whatever you did, and to bring you dignitas, which is where we get the word dignitary. Now, it's interesting because in that culture, the top of the food chain were priests. Did you notice that? At the bottom of the food chain were entrepreneurs, people who were workmen and sold stuff. You know, now we have a totally different flip of that. You know, there's no respect for people who are of the cloth. But every culture has this idea of there's a, a certain top of the food chain kind of idea. And so within your culture, you're going to start thinking leadership is about which strata you're in. And the people under you that you lead, yes, there's some benefit factor to them. They get some pay, but their job primarily is to serve you, not vice versa. So I think that's the question we want to wrestle with as we come out of this part of the passage. 
if we're going to reject this lie that until I'm over someone, I don't lead someone, then we need to ask ourselves, am I an over or under type of leader? Is your leadership about your position, telling people your position, being over them? Or is it under? I am whatever role I lead. I'm trying to come underneath and I'm trying to give you the best, bring you up to your best, serve you, give you what you need so that you can succeed. Think of it as a parent. How many of us had modeled and modeled a over them kind of mindset? Just hear the difference here. You obey me because I'm the head of this household. I'm the parent. You live here. It's my rules. All right, that's not wrong. But it's a very Gentile way of thinking about parenting. A similar way that feels very much is I want you to learn to respect our rules and be able to respect even things you don't agree with because you need that skill later in life. Learning how to respect authority is going to serve you well as you grow. This isn't about me being the boss. It's about you learning how to live under authority because that is going to set you up for success. See the difference? Ultimately, you still want obedience. Still, you want to teach people how to appeal, teach people how to agree to disagree, teach people how to obey when they don't even want to do it. But you're doing it, one, because it's all about you. I had a relative like this. Every time he'd come around, he'd say, Hey, kids, come here. Tell them who's the boss in our family. You are dad. Well, that's fine. But it's a very Gentile way of thinking about parenting. What about the same thing in marriage? Are you there to serve your spouse? Or be served by your spouse? I mean, imagine if we lived up to the ideal of Jesus and two people got married and let's try to outserve each other. Who would want that? A spouse who's trying to outserve you. I mean, we're going through a very challenging season. My wife had surgery six weeks ago and is pretty much still, you know, on her back 90-some percent of the time in bed or on the couch. And it's very, very frustrating for her. And pain all the time from her sciatica and, and, you know, can't really, you know. Anyway, just it's frustrating. But it's a very unique season of, hopefully a shorter season, but it doesn't look like it's going to be short, of serving my wife, serving our family. Without being resentful about the circumstances or, or sort of telling up, I don't deserve this or life doesn't deserve this or God shouldn't do this. What does it look like in this opportunity to serve? Like I was t- talking to my friend Bob a few weeks ago. I asked if I could interview him at an exploring service in November. So many of you know Bob. He was the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And I said, Bob, what, what sort of made you want that job? I mean, talking about a thankless job and, and of all things you could be doing. And I said, I'd love to hear what God taught you during that time, what the challenges were that time, and, and how God developed your faith. So he's going to let me interview him in November at our exploring service. He said, yeah, well, I think when I've thought about leadership in my life, you know, when you're going to a high point in leadership, what you're really trying to think is God gave you certain gifts. It's not like you got them all. God gave you your gifts, and God gave you a lot of opportunities. And God uses those opportunities to grow you. And you think that based on what God's given you in talents and opportunities, you feel like you can bring that to bear in your organization. You can add value to, to, to the stockholders. You can add value to the other people who work for you. You can add value to, to the customers. So I think the mindset is you think that maybe what God's given you allows you to serve and help people the greater way. I wonder how many times we think about that mindset when it comes to career, when it comes to family, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to life. Are you an over or under type of leader? If I ask the people around you, if you look yourself in the mirror. 
How about a third leadership lie? A third leadership lie is that followers serve the leader, but not vice versa. Because Jesus says this twice, not so among you. I don't want you to act like the benefactor model. Then he says it again, on the contrary. In case you don't get it, don't be like that. I wasn't advocating that, I was contrasting that. Here's how I want you to be great. Remember, I'm not against you desiring to be great. I just want you to define greatness the right way. And here he does that. He who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger. What? Well, he's going to take on two caste systems here. The Hebrew caste system is that if you're the oldest in the family, you had the birthright, you had the authority, you had the power, everybody had to do what you wanted to do. That was the Hebrew caste system. He said, even if you're the oldest, I want you to act like the youngest. You don't have any positional authority. You're there to serve and help everyone. If you want to know what greatness is, it's acting like the younger, which is how do I serve everyone here in this family, even without positional authority. Then he says, for who is greater? And this is a rhetoric question. It's a great rhetoric question. So imagine they're all sitting at the table arguing. Jesus comes in the door. He's been washing their feet. He says, guys... Rhetoric question. Who's greater? Those who sit at the table or those who serve those who sit at the table? Well, that's a no-brainer. Those who sit at the table. He says, yet I. Yet I. If that was true, haven't I told you I'm the Christ? Oh, yeah. Haven't I told you I'm the Son of God? Oh, yeah. Have I not said I'm the son of man, the one who sits at the right hand of God, just like in the prophet of Daniel chapter 7? I'm the son of man? Yeah. Well, if that's true, that I'm the great God in the flesh, I'm not sitting at the table. I'm serving you at the table. Oh, oh yeah. See, guys, you're into titles. I'm into towels. You're into what seat you're sitting at the table. I'm at serving everyone at the table. It's like they went... And, And here's the thing. Philippians 2 tells us that God emptied himself of his godly attributes, some aspects of them, to become a man. And then he surrendered himself to death and death on a cross. Why? God didn't do that in spite of who he is. God did that in light of who he is. The essence of our God is he is an other-centered being. And so he gave of himself and emptied himself to serve and die for us because he's an other-centered being. The reason Jesus is serving you at the table is because the essence of who he is is other-centered. That's what he is. And he's saying, I want you to have the same thing. Whatever seat you're in, whether you're at the top of the food chain or the middle of the food chain or nowhere in the food chain, I want you to know it's great when you're other-centered. Yet I... You act like I act. See, I'm God, and I'm not saying you serve me. I'm saying I get to serve you. And this yet I must have been like a moment for the disciples that moment. Like, what were we thinking? How did we miss this? How did we lose track of that? Essentially, when we began our church, it was one of the things we wanted to be a hallmark of what we're trying to produce, what we're trying to challenge ourselves to. How can we be other-centered leaders? Because probably everybody in the room, at some point, you've been the most important person in the room. 
In some way, you've been the coach, you've been the committee chairman, you've been the mom, you've been the dad, you've been somebody giving advice as a mentor or coach, you've been a supervisor. And if you look around our church, we have a lot of people who got titles, important titles, well-earned titles, surgeons and doctors and lawyers, like I mentioned, coaches and mothers and fathers and presidents. But when you're the most important person in the room, and people know that because we got a caste system too, and you choose to serve others, it will stand out. And what if we create a community where wherever you were in the food chain, what people saw most is us trying to serve one another. Individually, corporately. Certainly why we designed the church the way we did. Two different church services where one designed it, people don't even believe the way we believe because we want to serve them. In fact, we had a guy, I think it was three weeks ago, I finished speaking at the 10 o'clock service, so I was down here getting ready, and this guy walks down from about the middle of the, of the right section here. He says, hey, can I talk to you for a moment? I said, sure, what's going on? He said, I'm James, it's nice to meet you. So James, it's nice to meet you. He said, you may not remember me, but we attended for about two years, five years ago. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember. He goes, can I tell you my story? I'd love to hear your story. He said, we were not churchgoers at all, we weren't into church, and somebody invited us to the exploring service. And I came in looking for every excuse not to come back. And immediately I, I drove up and, you know, I felt so warm and welcomed by greeters who smiled at us and said hello out in the parking lot. And then, of course, came in the door and lots more excuses. Just to, you know, there's got to be a reason why. We'll try this once. We're never coming back again. People greet us at the door. We dropped our kids off. and The kids had a great time that day. We came in. We heard music. I recognized it wasn't religious music. I think it was James Taylor and Peter Gabriel that day. I'm like, oh, I kind of like this. And then, you know, you got up to speak, and, and it was actually a practical message about the Bible, how to apply it to my life. And so we came back, and we came back. And we kept coming for three or four months, and then somebody told us about the equipping service. And we recognized it was different. I'm like, oh my goodness, you're like the only person who's ever heard me talk about the service being different and understood it. You know, many, I can't tell you people at our 10 o'clock service would be like, so it's two different services? Yeah, so we started coming to the equipping service. And we're like, whoa, this is too much. Whoa, we're singing songs to God, and there's communion, and there's prayer, and like verse-by-verse Bible study. We're learning about, you know, cultural stuff that's too deep about benefactors and Greek-Roman stuff. You know, stick with the application. We got done with that week and went, you know, it wasn't as bad as we thought. Whew, it's high praise right there. It wasn't as bad as we thought. (laughs) Came back a second week and a third week and said, you know what? I'm actually, we're learning a lot. I'm being challenged a lot. I'm understanding the Bible a lot. So we became regular tenders the next year at your equipping service. I said, well, that's awesome. He said, we moved to Nashville about three years ago because of a job transfer. We've searched and searched and searched and found a Bible teaching church. And we now have Christ at the center of our life. And I am convinced it would not have happened had it not been for what God did in our lives through the work at Horizon. And I was just so amazed because every week it's somebody's first Sunday. And I don't know if you were serving that day in the parking lot. I don't know if you were teaching his kids that day in the children's ministry or if you were singing up on stage or or running a PowerPoint, handing out programs. But by serving other people in their spiritual pilgrimage, God uses us to change marriages, to change families, and to change eternal destinies. That's why we do what we do. So for all of you who serve and give each and every week and each and every year to our church, thank you for the Jameses who... That's only a few stories I hear about, let alone all the other ones that I don't hear about, who are feeling served by our other-centered approach. Even the last couple weeks, I've been telling you that this particular month is an exciting one because part of the way we're serving people is by finally putting our services online. 
So we got this app coming out here in the next couple of months, and as it's being developed, it's kind of cool. But we thought, you know, this app, it's going to be able to show videos of the service, but you can't really search by topic. Sermons on depression, sermons on parenting. And so we're putting a whole other database in place, and that's going to take a little bit more time, a little bit more money, but we feel like that's going to be a more powerful tool to serve. So as that's being put in the next month, maybe you're saying, hey, I want to be part of that. Maybe you haven't given to be part of our, our future growth fund yet. You say, hey, I want to be part of putting a tool like that can serve people in the future. Well, I told you that Turner Construction was to start in July, but, you know, deadlines kind of shift a little bit. It's probably going to be August 5th now. So we're going to start construction of the video um, tech room and the directing room's coming in place and then the, the new space. We've gotten some designs for the new space. Instead of just being a big black box theater, it's going to have very much an aesthetic feel like this room can. But that aesthetic feels put it a little bit over budget. So if you have not yet given to that and you say, hey, I want to create a tool that's going to help serve people moving forward, future generations, this is a perfect time, the next two weeks to a month, to say, hey, I want to be part of that because we're really making decisions on, on the app. We're really making decisions on the quality of how we're going to finish that room out so it can be a tool for the future. We want to continue to serve our community, whether it's the city gospels, whether it's the services we offer, whether it's the video service that you can pass on to your family and friends, that's what we're about as a church. Because people recognize when you're really about other people. I don't know if you know the story of um, Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote the book, Dem Democracy in America. He came to America after the Revolutionary War, and he was just struck that coming from a French system and a European system that was all hierarchical caste system, he showed up and he said, I would walk into taverns and I would walk into restaurants and I was struck in America that this individualism and equality created such a unique culture. I would see people at the tavern who were being served refer to the people serving them as sir and madam. You never refer to your server as sir and madam. And they would refer to the people they were serving as sir and madam. I've never seen this kind of equality. I've never seen this kind of totally different way of thinking about life. When you think about the pr basic Presbyterians who started our country with these biblical principles of servant leadership and breaking down this hierarchical structure and seeing each person in each type of work as having value. That the janitor's work is just as important as, as, the, as the supervisor's work, as the general's work. It totally revolutionized the world so much that when Alexis wrote about it, he's like, there's something very unique going on in America. He recognized an other-centered, other-serving, mutual-respecting kind of culture. So what would be Jesus' key takeaway for maybe this whole passage? What can we take away from these three leadership lies? Well, it's back to our, our key verse. The problem is not your desire to achieve greatness. Ambition is good. Achievement is good. God just wants you to define greatness properly. And you can do that in two ways. How can we, based on what Jesus said, how can we define greatness God's way, not our way? So that we can pursue it with ambition. So we can chase it with ambition. How do we define greatness God's way? He said, well, you want to be considered great? Let me tell you how I will consider you, by which criteria I will define greatness. You have been with me in my trials. You have seen me live this out. I serve other people. I am bestowing upon you a kingdom. I'm giving to you. And it's something bestowed or given. I'm giving you a kingdom. Because my Father bestowed a kingdom on me. You know what greatness is? 
I received from my father. And I said, look, at, I've been stewarded this opportunity, stewarded this kingdom, stewarded this leadership. Greatness is realizing everything you have has been bestowed to you. And then greatness is I'm going to take what's been bestowed to me and I'm going to bestow it on others. Greatness is how do I give away what's been given to me? How do I serve others the way God served me? You look at how God has served you and say, I want to do unto others what God has done unto me. And do you know that some of the most famous people in history are known not for the power they took, but for the power they gave away? Like, what? Yeah. Take George Washington, for example. George Washington, after the Revolutionary War, you know, in those days, the Articles of, of uh, the Confederation, if you can imagine this, the federal government did not have the power to tax us. Can you imagine those days? And so the only way to raise funds for the army was to get it from the states. The states raised the fund to pay for our federal army. Well, because of that, the generals and many of the people in the army thought, you know, this is really ridiculous. The bureaucracy of these states, you know, not be able to get us our money in time. We need a federal government to tax us. That won't have the bureaucracy, if you can imagine that was the talk. So George Washington has become the, the president, and now he's got a chance to step down, right? Honor the Constitution, honor the Republic. But a lot of people were starting to say, hey, you know, England's got a King George. Why don't you be our King George? He was very, very popular, won the war. And one of his generals, a guy by the name of Nicola, wrote this note to him. Saying, you know, I'm not sure a monarchy is really all that bad when you think about it. He says it this way. Some people have so connected the ideas of tyranny and monarchy as to find it difficult to separate them. But I think we could. In fact, what if we gave you some title a little bit more moderate? Yeah, some strong arguments might be made. For admitting even the title of king, you could be King George. And I think I'd conceive that you'd come with quite a few material benefits. He's popular. No one knows if America's going to work. Why step down? Why not just be the king? And George Washington writes this scathing report. I'll read it. The vocabulary is amazing. George Washington writes back to his general. Be assured, sir, that no occurrence in the course of the war has given me more painful sensations than your information of there being such ideas existing in the army as you have expressed, me being king. And I must view with abhorrence and reprehend with severity that I am much at a loss to conceive what part of my conduct could have given encouragement to such an address, which to me seems big with the greatest mischievousness that can befall my country." That's a no. <laughs> Here is a guy who is known for being one of the great politicians, great leaders of our time, not because he accumulated power and possession, but because instead he gave it up. He defined greatness by I've been bestowed an opportunity, I'm now going to bestow it on others. Define greatness God's way. I've been bestowed something and I want to continue to bestow. And then the last part of defining greatness is this. I want my rewards later. She says, you've watched me. But tell you, this kingdom I bestowed upon you gives you the chance that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you may sit on the thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. You know what greatness is? It's not getting your rewards now. Everybody patting you in the back now. Way to go now. Look what seat I'm in now. You can live your life about sitting at this table. Or you can live your life about sitting at my table. 
You can live like that with all my rewards now. Or, you know, I don't need my rewards now. I, I can't wait to have my rewards later. How I reign, how I judge, how I serve, where I sit at the king's table. Greatness is not about the rewards I get now. Greatness is about the rewards I receive later from the one who considers me great by living in others-centered life. Your problem is not your desire to achieve greatness. It's just not knowing how to define it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful message from Jesus about turning the culture upside down and living an ethic that transcends our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before you go, we'd like to give you one more opportunity how you can serve and hopefully be served. We have an event coming up that we do every year called Kaboom! And we actually have Rozzy Fireworks comes out and shoots fireworks over our lake. It's a way to thank all those who serve, all the families who serve, all the volunteers who serve. But everyone is welcome. So if you want to come, it's going to be on August 17th, 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. There's going to be ice cream out there, a chance to lay out your... Uh, picnic blankets and and watch the fireworks over the lake together it's a great chance to invite friends maybe you got a friend who it's it's just even too big of a step to come to our exploring service let alone our equipping service but free fireworks i mean and ice cream well what could be easier to invite than that meet some people find out christians aren't too weird just a few of us are weird so you can avoid the weird ones when you're sitting out there but just a great opportunity for you to hopefully feel loved on by us Thank you for your service. Thank you for this exciting year that we're part of and also a chance to invite your friends. So we'll see you there for Kaboom and we'll see you next week as we continue digging into the Feast of Forgiveness. Thanks so much.